Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, 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 here we are, episode two. I'm very excited. I feel like we're on a bit of a roll here. Might just be me. But I feel like we're off to a good start and I'm very excited for you to listen to today's episode. Stephen and I actually did a podcast a few months ago now, not even that long ago. And I loved our kind of conversation and touching on a number of different things, not just within the business, but also about, you know, general life confidence, how you put yourself places, what happens when things go wrong. Um, and Stephen thinks a lot and talks a lot about developing habits and setting yourself up for success. And I really enjoyed our conversations talking about that. And also, you know, the reality of being a business business owner, exiting a business, believing in yourself in terms of work, um, and how you also maintain those of your employees in terms of valuing rest, in terms of valuing self-care and mental health and all of these things. So we've had a great chat and I'm very excited for you to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. Stephen, how are you today? I'm brilliant. I'm, uh, yeah, always slightly chaotic but calm. I'm usually chaotic but not calm, so um, nice balance here. (laughs) So you can bring the calm um, because I'll bring the chaos. But first things first, for anyone who doesn't know your story, from business to kind of social to where you are now, give us the quick pitch. Who is Stephen? Okay, um, born in Africa, um, moved to the UK when I was a baby, uh, grew up in in an all-white area in an all-white school of like 2,000 kids, the only like black kid there. Family were pretty basically bankrupt we lived in like a dilapidated house with like smash windows um realized at about 15 16 years old that i really hated the format of school stopped going to class attendance hits 30 percent um start running businesses when i was 15 for the school the vending machine deals i'd done for the school so that the school made revenue and i made revenue started running all the school trips got expelled from school then that was rejected by the school because i made them so much money 17 they did expel me and I was, I was banned from like going to the prom and all these other things. Went off to university, then went to one lecture, walked in, sat down, definitely the wrong lecture because the guy was talking about love and I was there to study business. Never went back. So dropped out, called my mum, said, mum, I'm dropping out of university. She goes, no, you're not. I go, yes, I am. She goes, no, you're not. I go, yes, I am. She goes, I won't speak to you ever again if you don't go back to university. I said, good riddance, mum. <laughs> Didn't speak to her for two years. Um, started a business, failed. Started another one at 20 and it banged. It's worth 400, I don't know, 400 million today. And built it over the last six years. And I podcast, I'm an investor in space companies. I'm an investor in the biggest psychedelics company in the world. Been working there as a creative director full-time for the last six months. Um, Investor on the board of Huel, who are boom, 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 hashtag ad. The fastest growing e-commerce company in um, in 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 the country internationally. Investor in cancer company, PTSD company, building a blockchain company at the moment, starting a company called Flight Story, which is going to be another iteration of Social Chain, what that company was. On working hard, 
I want sure. to know your honest and open answers. Number one, reading or podcasts? Podcasts. Time blocking or winging it? Time block. Ooh. <sighs> oh, we got you on the second one. <laughs> Virtue sick. Like, I want to be a time blocker, but I wing life. Right, okay. Airplane mode or notifications on? Airplane mode. More or less than eight hours sleep? Less. Office or working from home? Both. My office yes, is your in my office my home. Office is in your home, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Um, early bird or night owl? Uh, uh, night owl, for sure. So, with the time blocking thing, is mm. that because you find that things just come out of... Out of kind of nowhere anyway so you feel like it's almost pointless time blocking or do you just not work in a time blocking way I'm, I'm interested I'm always sure. interested to hear how other people work I think time blocking is just so incredibly important I talk, spoke to one of the world leaders in this space called Nir Ayel Nir Ayel really taught me the importance of allocating all of your to-do lists and anything in your life whether it's going on a date with your partner or it's taking your dog for a walk into your calendar so I, th I think, uh, yeah, I agree. And I think that it's definitely, you know, I, I see the value in it. And I think my thing is that I know I'm too like that already. It's not that I need to make it more so. So I need to know. I think that's the thing, though. It's about knowing yourself and knowing what works for you. Because for me, I know that I have a habit of planning everything to a T, including my time off, the time I'm spending with friends, the time I'm spending doing whatever, and therefore I need to get better at the opposite. But I think that's important. It's exactly important to be able to take advice and say, okay, great, I can see the science and I'm not gonna do it. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, also, yeah, yeah. also say, you know, okay, that is, that is better, but I don't want my weekend to be more productive or I don't want to clean the house faster. I want to have the relaxation of knowing mm. that I'm going to do it at some point, if that makes sense. But I see and what you're saying and I agree. Yeah, so, 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 and this is the thing, this is the point which I kept going back and forward with him on because I don't want to be, I don't want people to be more productive, but it's about using your time more in line with your values. And mm. when you don't allocate your time against your values, and your values might be, having a facial or just like laying around watching youtube or whatever yeah. but then like unbudgeted money they get it gets spent poorly so you'll end up doing something which isn't in line with your values which might be binging netflix for 16 hours watching trash tv which whatever which wasn't in line with your values um and that is the risk like unbudgeted mm. money gets wasted un you know, unscheduled time or you know poorly allocated time will get wasted too so yeah. Do I do it? No. Do I do it? No. But it's. <laughs> but, but I know I that it's good. It, yeah. <laughs> when I do do it, which is which is sometimes on the weekends, um, I feel better for it. And I have to be honest, I do feel better for it because I'll write DJ in the morning, practice DJing, three hours just to make lunch or just do whatever I want, go to the gym at this time, and also it's flexible so I can move it around so I'm not like held in place by this calendar. Yeah. Right. I'm interested. And and within that. If you're DJing at midnight on a weekday and that's before the gym, are, are we doing 1am gym sessions? Is this how we're, this how we're working? So, yeah, I will, I will say to myself, go to the gym at 9pm, but at 9pm, I'm probably mm. still, I still have demands on my time. So I end up going to the gym, usually, I'd say on average, 11pm. And then we mm. sway either side of the average quite drastically. So this week I've been to the gym at 2am in the morning and I, I left mm -hmm. and I got home at about 330 um, and I've also been to the gym at nine, this nine PM, this which was the earliest I've been this week. But just been busy. Do you mm. think now, now that you have more? I mean, I know that you have lots of demands on your time, but you mm. have an element of control over your time as well in terms of how much you take on, in terms of what you delegate, etc., etc., etc. Is that a way you work best, or is it something that 
you do because you physically don't have enough hours in the day to do everything it's about just, it. It's just, I like, I'm really good at resisting an external narrative to have a perfect this, that this is the best time to mm. do this. This is the best way to do this. I'm like really unstructured, kind of unorganized, a bit of a mess. I don't drink green juice at 7 a.m. and journal for 15 minutes. I just mm -hmm. kind of do my best every day regardless. And I'm consistent with the things that matter. And that for me has been a winning solution. And I'm interested to know where that line comes then between knowing something's not right for you. For example, mm. dropping out of university or leaving school or changing path mm. or whatever. Where the, where the difference is between knowing what's not right for you because you don't like it and knowing what you don't like but you should still stick at in order to get to where you want to be. Yes, I actually wrote, this is a very important question. So I actually um, drew a picture, which I'm gonna share with you. Oh, good. <laughs> um, that explains this, because it's such an important question. So in our society, we glamorize starting as if it's the be all and end all. And all the narratives mm. you'll see are that starting is, go on, start the business, start the whatever. And then we, we discredit quitting because quitting is seen as this thing which will makes you, makes you weak or a loser. But in fact, when you think about it, the, the incredibly important underappreciated thing you do before you start anything, usually is you quit something else. So mm -hmm. quitting is the thing that predicates starting. And so I, I've always said quitting is for winners and it, in of itself, it's an art form. And so in my book, when I quit my job at Social Chain, I try to explain to people why I was at, at peace um, quitting mm. because I have this, what I call this quitting framework here, which kind of guides you. It's exactly what you just asked me there. You said, what's the difference between quitting something because it's hard and you're weak and you're just, you're avoiding discomfort because you're a comfort seeker and you don't, you know, mm. whatever, or you're scared or fearful or quitting because it sucks, right? So in my quitting framework, the first question you ask yourself is, are you thinking about quitting? Yes, we are thinking about quitting. Why are you thinking about quitting? And you can go down two different sides of the flow chart here. I'm thinking about quitting because it's hard. And if you're thinking about quitting because something is hard, ask yourself, is the challenge, so this could be a marathon, a relationship, a job, a podcast, whatever, is the challenge, the, the bit that's making it hard, worth the potential reward on offer? Mm. And if the answer is yes, so it's hard, but it's worth it, it's a worthwhile challenge, don't quit. If the answer mm -hmm. is no, and it's just incredibly hard and it's not worth it, and you can you know, define worth it, then you quit. Going down the other side of the flow chart, so you're thinking about quitting because something sucks. And I've used the word sucks, purposefully ambiguous. You can define it yourself. Toxic boss, shitty partner, whatever, you, you know, bad job, whatever. Do you believe you could make it not suck? Do you believe you have it within your power to change the relationship, go to counseling, you know, speak to your boss, whatever it is. If the answer is no, you've tried your best. It sucks and you can't change that, right? Mm. Quit, quit. If you yeah. think you can change that, there's work you can do in your relationship, your job, whatever, to make it not suck, you then ask yourself the other question again, which is, is the effort it would take to make it not suck worth the reward on offer? Mm -hmm. yeah. So that can be in a relationship. If the answer is no, it sucks and it sucks, you can change it, but it's not worth changing, quit. If it sucks, you can change it and it's worth the effort to change it, then you don't quit. And that's my yeah. little quitting framework that I've, I think instinctively applied over 10 major quitting decisions that have brought me here. Yeah, I think it's very interesting and thank you for taking us through that. And I think that it's, I mean, it is exactly true. I asked, especially because I think that online with the rise of aspirational jobs and the kind of aspirational must have of like purpose and loving your job and all of these things, I think with that, there also comes a sort of culture of, glamorizing the idea that 
not necessarily that you quit when you, it's hard, but you quit when something isn't right for you in the short term. So for example, to give an example, when I was at university in my first year and I was starting out on social media and I was really trying to grow things and I started my business, I hated my university. Like I, t I hated my first year. I remember recording a video after my first year and being like, I was really struggling with my mental health. I was really struggling with the course. I was not happy at all. And for the first time, like really unhappy. And it made so much sense to quit apart from the fact that it was worth it because it had always been my dream. And to go to that university to do that thing was exactly what younger me wanted. So I felt like I had a duty to be there. At the same time, my cohort of people on social media, a lot of that became about, you know, growing on one thing and then quitting another, which there's so much space in because, you know, we can't do everything. And I started looking at people and being like, shit, should, like, should, I, should I drop out too? Because I have, you know, I have this going on and like, maybe I don't actually like it and maybe I'm just doing it for my past self. And my reasoning that led to me not doing that was not only the fact that I loved academia and really wanted to go through that and really wanted to kind of get out the other end. I don't think it was worth it in terms of like career. It wasn't something that was worth that. It was worth it in terms of like sticking at it and knowing that just because something's hard and just because I'm not enjoying something, it doesn't mean that, you know, I also thought, you know, a huge amount of grass is always greener and, and I can push the rest of that to the end of after university. So I think at that time, I really struggled with the rhetoric online that you that you know these better things come along and you instantly jump yeah ship. and you, i was just trying to i was making sure that your example there fit into the framework and what you said there was it, it, university was really hard you, you could even say it sucked but despite that in your own definition of what worth it means whether that's proving discipline to yourself it was a dream i always had you know or some people might say you know that they actually wanted the degree it was the hardship was in your definition worth, exactly, it, worth it to stick at it and and that's yeah. a, a an equation that only you can calculate in your own mind and it's subjective so yeah yeah no absolutely and i think that's the key as well because i have so many friends who did drop out of university and it was the best thing for them so it's less so about that and more about a sub exactly and like more yeah. about a kind of subjective approach to exactly as you say what's worth it it doesn't need to be worth it monetarily or in terms of your career or in terms of that but what's worth it to you in deciding that anyway so another thing that you're doing seemingly on top of everything else you've just announced that you're joining dragon's den i am congratulations what what are your aims with this my so when so i was going to do this show with channel four and i don't mm. even know if i'm allowed to say this but yeah, okay it's fine we'll get some me. exclusive Thanks. Yeah, I was meant to do the show with Channel 4 and I'd, I'd done, gone through the whole process. I was about to sign the contract and it's, it was like Gordon Ramsay's kitchen nightmare for business. I go into businesses, I try and fix them. I offer them investment to turn it around. And then I got this call from Dragon's Den literally the same day. And they said, they knew I was going to take the show with Channel 4 and they said, don't take it. We, you know, we, we need to speak to you. Um, and then they offered me, the like, head of the BBC called me and said... Um, yeah, we want you to, to be a dragon. And I watched Dragon's Den when I was 12 years old. And I remember sitting on the floor in my house in Plymouth, looking up and, and watching the dragons and mentally playing out that I was the sixth dragon and even pausing the, the, the TV. I'm not even sure if you could pause the TV, maybe just talking over it back then, but um, pretending what I, you know, reenacting what I would have said if I was a dragon. And then mm. as I tweeted yesterday and I only found it yesterday, well, someone, in my, one, someone that follows me found it. I posted on Facebook 10 years ago this week my, that I had applied to to pitch on Dragon's Den. I was like, Aww. and the post is like, I just I was 18, I just applied for Dragon's Den. I think my pitch was really concise and compelling. So I'm hopeful 
And 10 years later, you know, so that speaks to my, where, where my desire and my sort of mental prestige for that show came from. I saw it as a kid mm. and it was my first window into business. And I felt this sense of responsibility to 12 year old black kids that are sat at home looking at their screen and not seeing someone that represents them to, to do yeah. the show. And really not just for black people or to, for minorities, but for, to represent a new era of business, the, the era and the world of business that you represent, which is mm. the internet and the, the power of social media and the fact that you can start a business at any age now and you don't have to be a 63-year-old white man in a suit. And, and so when they called me, I thought I had to do it. And so what, what are you most excited about? Do you know what? Like shaking things up a bit and being myself. Absolutely. And I think so, that's important. And that's important that you go in and do exactly how you would do rather than paying that kind of, I don't know, you know, try, trying to fit in. They, they want you for a reason. And I think that's important yeah. for everyone to know whenever they're going into something new. They want you. They don't want what you think the job should be or exactly. what they think the job should be. And I think that becomes truer and truer as you progress through your career. Are you within that, though? You know, there's still a terrifying part of that. Are you are you nervous? I'm meant to be here, do you know what I mean? It's just, I feel like it was, for me, I told my team five years ago I was gonna be a dragon. If you arrive with imposter syndrome, you will come with the suit and you will come nervous in a shell um, trying to be a dragon. Whereas my confidence and my, my sense of, do you know what? I, I'm meant to be here and I'm ready for this is the thing that will allow me just to be myself. Yeah, just to be but myself. within that as well, there's part of that where people need to be able to grow grow ahead of that imposter syndrome or to fight it or whatever yeah. have, have you ever had imposter syndrome or is it is it something you've never kind of battled with so i'm assuming i i presume because i i've got a few friends that one that literally has a podcast called imposter syndrome from what i understand from where her imposter syndrome comes from is i think this real innate belief that you're only meant to be at any phase in your life <clears throat> exactly where you are skilled, experienced, and um, qualified to be. I don't have mm -hmm. that fundamental belief. I have the fundamental belief that you're not meant to be there. I have the fundamental belief that you're always meant to be outside of where you're qualified, experienced, and, and, and uh, you know, set to be. So if you believe that you're, if you're fundamentally always meant to be exactly where you're qualified to be, then yeah, you'll say, well, I'm an imposter syndrome. Every time you're outside of your qualifications or life is stretching you in those growth moments, so I don't have imposter syndrome because I think Steve Bartlett is always meant to be out of his depth. And mm. so when I'm out of my depth, I feel at home. This is where I'm meant to be, out of my depth. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I think it's yeah. just a reframing in the mind. And So yeah. where do you think you developed that attitude? Because it's quite like a, do you think it was from being rebellious and that working and therefore thinking, you know what? It, I don't need to go alongside other people's rules because I've done this and it's done me well. Or do you think that was something that's innate or... Because I, I, the way I see it, based on the way you've described your, you know, your upbringing and, and what you went through and all of these different things, seems to be that one of the common factors is breaking those molds. And by breaking out of that, you were always rewarded in some way, even if it didn't instantly succeed or whatever. So to me, that would reinforce an idea then that, of course, you're going to feel comfortable out of your comfort zone or breaking those molds or being where you're not meant to be, because that's what's served you well. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, it's exactly and the way that I describe it is um, like confident that like we're talking about confidence and self belief here, like, and self. So confidence and self belief are built or destroyed in a compounding self reinforcing cycle. 
So from a very young age, because my parents weren't in the house, so by 10 years old, I pretty much didn't see them. Um, and I had this massive insecurity because we were broke and I really wanted money because that would make me happy, I thought, because it'd make me fit in. Tremendously independent kid who's made this connection that anything he gets comes from his own actions and he's incredibly insecure, so he goes and chases money. And my the independence I had allowed me to build in a compounding, self-reinforcing way my evidence to myself that when Steve wants to do something and he sets his sights on it, he does it. And that, co that can compound for or against you. And it's devastating in people's lives when it compounds against them. So for me, let me just give an example, a really, really easy example, which is public speaking. <clears throat> 14 years old, school asked me to do a public talk. It goes fairly well, um, which makes me a little bit more self-assured that I can do public talks, which means next time I'm offered one, I do it. And when I do it, I do it with more conviction, which increases the chances that it will go well. And it goes well. And then it, and that cycle continues up until the point when I'm 25 and I'm on stage in Brazil, 20,000 people, Obama is on stage as well. And my confidence there compounded up. But and it, and the, the horrible thing is it comp your confidence and self-belief compounds down faster and more horrendously. So one knocks your confidence, so you go up on stage, you get the words wrong, someone makes a, confident, a comment to you after, and it goes badly, your confidence and self-belief can fall off a cliff. You then become avoiding. So you avoid the chance of being rejected or that failure again, which means you don't take talks. If you're forced into one, you arrive in it with such nerves that you do a bad job, and the cycle reinforces and continues. And for me, in this area of my life, which is like self-belief, being out of my comfort zone, I've been proving to myself for 10 years that I can do it. So how do we make this actionable? What advice do I have for people? And um, one, of the, one, of the, one of the things is, you know, people will look at challenge in their life or stepping outside of their comfort zone as this Mount Everest that they have to move out of their way. Whereas I would say to you, you, you need to start building evidence in your life that you can. Small little pieces of evidence, one step at a time. And that might mean next time at work or in university or whatever, or when you're on Instagram, um, do, the, do the Instagram live. If you're, if you're terrified of stage fright, just do an Instagram Live or make a video and post it. And finding those really small steps that you can take to build evidence for yourself is integral to building your self-belief and confidence. Um, not moving huge mountains. You don't have to go straight to speak on stage in Brazil. Just like, what is the small thing I can do today to step one little tiptoe outside of my comfort zone? And if you do that, um, it'll compound in your favor over the long term. Yeah, no, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's very good advice. And I think that we, if you are trying to improve something, you actively have to be practicing it. And that goes for everything. And that goes for going outside of your comfort zone and pushing yourself further. You have to, you have to allow yourself to practice it and to learn from when it goes right as well as when it goes wrong. Um, so no, I think that's very, I think that's very, very important. I you know, Can I just say where I, I learned that? Cause I think yeah. it's so important. I used to think that you could, I read like The Secret and these other books and they all say like, look in the mirror in the morning and tell yourself you're great. Mm -hmm. And and when I think about how beliefs work, because your belief in yourself is a belief. If I if I said to you, Grace, and I've said this a few times before, if I said to you, I'm go you've got a, a lovely dog, right? You've got a dog. Mm -hmm. I've seen I your do dog. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And this is going to sound really morbid, and so I hate to say this, but if I held your dog at gunpoint and said, if you don't believe that I'm Jesus Christ, I'm going to shoot your dog, you couldn't actually believe it. You could only lie to me. To save your dog, I right? I do not like this scenario. <laughs> so, so even if everything, even if your precious dog was on the line, you couldn't believe something you don't believe. And the same applies for the belief in yourself. These quotes on Instagram that I do a ton of, you can't just make yourself believe something you don't. And people don't understand this. They think beliefs are choices. But, but, but what is then belief if it is evidence -based. not- Evidence-based. 
So if I then got this and turned it but into it, wine... Can that evidence not be you convincing yourself again and again? Because I think that lots of people... With evidence. In, I think there is also something that, that means that we, you know, when you tell yourself something again and again, not necessarily the kind of affirmations or whatever, but when you tell yourself something again and again, like with self-doubt, so when you tell yourself your shit again and again, you start to believe it. And I don't think... I th So is that evidence-based? Can you tell yourself and does that become the evidence? Um, if you repeatedly tell yourself something, I, I personally don't think that will change your fundamental belief of that thing. Like if I sat here and went, Jesus Christ is real, Jesus Christ is real, Jesus, and I'm an atheist, I don't think no matter how many times I repeat that, I'm gonna fundamentally believe it. However, if at that night, the chair started to hover and it span around and something slammed down on the floor and then the, the, the I don't know, the, the, all the ornaments in my room changed and, and spelt out the word Jesus Christ. I tell you what, that night I might go to bed and start believing in Jesus because I have evidence mm. for it. And this is a, this was a really profound thing for me because I, I used to believe that we chose our beliefs and we don't. We our, our beliefs are based on some anecdotal or whatever evidence that we have, including our belief about ourselves. You can't. You I know, think. So... I think you can though choose to pay more attention to the areas that the evidence so you can have a lack of belief in something for example a lack of self-belief because you're not paying attention to the evidence that you're actually good at something yeah. so you're not paying attention to the fact that you actually do well or you're only paying attention to when it goes wrong yeah. so in that case there's also an element not just of what you're shown in terms of evidence but also what you're choosing to digest in term and analyze in terms of that evidence yeah. which so is why i think there's a yeah. huge part of self-analysis when it comes to self-belief or self-doubt or whatever it might be because you have to it's not just that evidence existing it's you being able to digest and convince yourself of that evidence and then take it as a fact rather than the fact that you feel like you're misled because you're not actually very good at something if that makes sense yeah, you, I, exactly. And I think the point that you highlighted is a super important one, which is you have a bias on which evidence you accept. And some yeah. evidence will say you, you suck. The evidence, Jenny said that I was really shit when I spoke on stage. That's evidence. And so you go, mm -hmm. that anecdotal evidence that I suck, yeah, yeah. I might have a bias towards believing that, especially if my self-esteem is already low, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, interesting. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So how do you know that it's the right time that, I mean, I know you've gone through your framework of how you make those decisions and how you quit. I don't, I don't necessarily think it's exiting is quitting a business at all. Um, and I think that often at the right time, especially when there's, you know, when a business has been built so far beyond its initial idea. Did, was that kind of screaming at you or was it a longer term decision? Did you start to have the conversations before you made your mind up? How did that kind of look like? For people who don't know what it's like to exit a business, myself included, what did that kind of look like for so you? So I tried to change things over the space of about 12 years to, to move the direction the, the direction of the business in one that I felt had 
uh, a longer term future. And when I hit the point where I didn't think I could, it was worth the effort to change it or that there was too much resistance because we have this massive board of directors in like Germany and Europe. Um, you got you ask yourself ultimately why you're doing this business. What is it, what, what what is it giving you? Is it money? Yeah. Is it some sort of challenge? And for me, um, the, it wasn't giving me challenge anymore. So it was time for me to um, get the money and go. And and as your business grew, as the business grew when you were at Social Chain, what was your favorite stage of growing it? When there was like ten of us on a like you know six of us in London. We started in London with six of us. When there was about ten, we moved to Manchester. Mm. Um, those early days, of course, because it's um, terrifying, exciting, and you know everyone's name, and you know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a really tight family. We're here now. This, you know, my my team now. There's how many of us is there? Twelve now. And when I launch Flight Story, that's going to add another five people, and it will go. Flight Story, I think, will be worth about hundred million in the next three years. If we reverse engineer from there, I think we'll have two hundred about two hundred and fifty employees here in the next three years. That's yeah. a conservative estimate. So going to do it again. <laughs> I love the confidence. I, I really do. Mm. And I appreciate it. And I think that, um, well, can you tell us a little, give us a headline on Flight Story? I used to be an agency and we used to hold mm-hmm. brand, brands ransom, basically. So we'd like do your marketing. We keep all the data and all the insights and all the knowledge. I knew that was the wrong thing, right? So I'm mm-hmm. doing the opposite. We now build an agency inside your company and we build the team and we tell you how to tell your stories, but specifically for companies that are going to the stock market or the public markets, whether that's a crypto project or I don't know, Huel are gonna do an I if Huel are gonna do an IPO, and we get paid in equity. So we don't get paid mm-hmm. in fees. Right, right. Because I was gonna say in a way, in terms of building building them an in-house agency or making them self-sufficient to do what you do, in itself, obviously, slightly self-cannibalizing. How do you justify doing the right thing and being self-cannibalizing? And is there always a way to make that, you know, to also make that the <laughs> the business case, the profitable thing? Too? Yeah, you know, I think um, I've learned in business that when you go against the best interests of your customers, your days are numbered. And yeah, the agency I completely model, agree. Do you see what I mean? Like, so you can you can like scam people or rip them off in the short term or not do what's right for them. But eventually someone will do what's right for them and that person mm-hmm. will, will finish you off. I think that's so true. And I think it's a, you know, I asked because I think it's so classic traditional business to think that you always need to have something slightly fishy to, to do well and to keep, as you say, to keep people ransom or to keep people reliant or whatever. 100%. And I, Amazon are the best example of this because Jeff Bezos is like simple, singular philosophy was we wake up every single day at Amazon and we try and make the customer experience better. That is it. That is like mm-hmm. fundamental to their business strategy was Amazon's whole thing was like, how can you buy something in two clicks and it arrives the same day if possible? And it's super easy. And the businesses that I've seen in the e-commerce space, the real giants that have won are just completely obsessively focused on that experience. And then if you think about the world, the macro trends of like social media and feedback and trust pilot and all of these things, which are new things in the, in the world of um, retail, you know, your customers are all going to chat now as well. And mm. if you if you are fishy, then you're going on someone's story and it's going to go viral. And, and it's the same with yeah. company culture. But then within that, so what I was going to say within that, so Amazon might do the right thing for the customer, but the pissing in bottles thing, I think also comes into play there. How how do you do both? <laughs> I think I think it's possible to run a company where your shareholders are doing great and your employees aren't pissing in bottles, yes. Good. That's Good the question. Glad, yeah. glad we can agree on that one. No one that um, works for me has ever pissed in a bottle. Well, you don't <laughs> know that. Okay, I'm pointing at himself. 
What's in that bottle? I know that someone in your company has definitely been on a car journey that's too long and not been able to stop or been at a festival and things have gone wrong. I, I will not accept that. I didn't pay them to do that, so. <laughs> that's fair enough. That's where we draw the line, I think. Um, how would you, how would you describe your job now? Because you do so many different things. I'm interested in to, well, first of all, how do, how do you introduce yourself? Do you say, I'm, I I am Stephen, I am you don't introduce yourself <laughs> because no because it's so difficult like i again it comes back to labels like it's it's, it's a process mm. of trying to make you understand me so fortunately these days i get to kind of just give the longer version or sometimes you know i get to say all the things i do and mm. <clears throat> then it's hard to label me i'm an entrepreneur i guess but I'm, i feel like with with the show and the music and the djing and the even the book i, I see books as art like I, I think i'm just as much an artist and i'm a creative director at a three billion dollar mental health company like well, I don't know. I'm a creative director there and I'm an entrepreneur here. And I don't know. I'm Steve and I do a ton of things. And well, within that, I guess, you know, you've had a lot of success and we can we can all see that. I know you're very vocal about your failures and when it's gone wrong, too. So tell us behind the scenes, what is the biggest mistake you've ever made for one of your businesses? I mean, so by definition, a company it's like Google definition, a company is a mm -hmm. group of people. So that's like the fundamental thing that I think is the biggest um determinant factor of whether a company is going to succeed and I've hired some like awful people and they've overstayed their welcome because of me because I was a coward mm. or because I wasn't paying attention to the red flag so when I think about the things the biggest mistakes I made in business okay I had a bad idea here and there and it failed but those things you know I'm happy that I yeah. at least executed and got to the point where the world told me if it was a failure or success the things yeah, where I think true. you're a, you're an asshole are like having a toxic person in your company and letting them fester there for like two or three years, even mm. though you knew you should have made a decision, but you were a coward. So I try mm. and learn from that these days. People yeah. are like bad people and letting them stay are my, is my biggest mistake in business, I think. And, and how do you then learn from those mistakes in terms of, you know, obviously you'll, you'll do it and then you'll do it wrong. And then hopefully you make sure you don't do it the next time. I know from, for a fact, when it comes to things like people and things like, Hiring, you know, I'd like to say that I really like my main concentration always is making sure we have a nice company culture and make sure making sure we have it's a great place to work and all of these things. And yet every single decision you make in terms of people, especially if it's like, you know, if it's a senior person or whatever, it's a long decision to make and it's hard and it's incredibly expensive and it usually is way worse in the short term. So how do you learn from those things and know that it's always right to still take that leap or still, yeah, so I think that, you know, the first thing I have to kind of preface this with is that you're you're always going to make mistakes with hiring, but the so you're always going to think someone's great, bring them in, and then turns out they're not. The bit that you can, and it's hard to control that because you know interview processes and CVs and whatever, and they, uh, don't tell the full picture, and then them suiting the, this company is also an experiment that's never been done before. So. You know, the, the, I don't, I'm not hard on myself about that, but I'm hard about I'm hard on myself, and I want to I seek to improve in all the elements that I can control. Which is, did I really hire slow? Did I really take the time to get to know them, to do the references, to to, and did I really listen to it, or did I come into it with a romantic bias that just because they worked at this place, which is our biggest competitor, they will be great here? So did I really hire slow? And then on the other end, did I did I fire fast? And so those are the two things that I actually obsess about, which is, are you trying to make a convenient hire or an egotistical hire, or is it a good hire? And then on the end, it's like the minute you have evidence that they are not the right person, do you fire fast enough? Because I, was, I, was, I did, ran the numbers one day and I was like, here is the time cost of a bad hire. Let's say it takes two months looking for them. 
it takes, uh, let's say two months in the hiring process to, to, to f interview them, to find them, whatever. That's four months. And then you're going to give them, say, like six months probation in your company where you're going to find out that they are maybe not so good. And then some often you put them on like a progression plan to try and make them better. That's another three months there. And then you, you end up firing them. And then you have to do that process again where you look for someone else and hire them. And all in all, you're getting to almost 18 months of lost time for one bad hire right? And it's just so expensive. So this is why you have to take your time um, uh, and make and hire super slow and then fire as fast as you possibly can. And the bit in the middle, whether how they perform, a lot of that isn't actually your fault or it's yeah. very difficult to predict. Well, one thing I have to ask about that, we're told hire fast, fire fast a lot. How do you make sure that you're hiring fast and firing fast and also being fair about the firing fast part? I make the decision, like for me, the work here is the most important thing. This is why you, mm -hmm. you're here. We're not, this isn't a charity. This isn't philanthropy. You're here to serve a purpose, which is connected to this grand, this greater mission. And mm -hmm. usually, you know, the, 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 the thing that will make me fire you regardless and not give you a chance is your attitude. If you have a bad mm -hmm. attitude, or if there's a character flaw, which is consistent with, which proves to be pretty consistent, goodbye. Because your attitude and your, your character are the biggest, are the most accurate predictor of how you'll behave in the future. So goodbye. Yeah. Right. If you have a really good attitude and, you know, your character's fine and you culturally fit into the team, but you're not skilled enough, that's a different story. Then I think, OK, can I? Mm. It's almost like what I said with my quitting framework. Um, is the effort it would take worth it? You know, so the investment, the training, um, if I think it is, then you can stay and we'll, we'll, we'll and especially if you're a good person, we'll, we'll, we'll invest in you. Um, but if you're not, if you've got, if you, you know, if I don't think you're skilled or you'll, you'll never be skilled enough to do the job, then this isn't a charity. Like I, you're like, this isn't the place for you or for me. I'm going to give you critical feedback every day. That is unfair because you can't meet the, the expectations of the role. That's going to suck for you. And it sucks for me because the work is bad. Would you say to people then who, who get fired, <laughs> I mm. guess, that a lot, not, not necessarily from you, we're not necessarily talking to ex-employees, but, you know, what do we say to people that then get fired that it's probably for the best for both of you, not necessarily based on opportunity, but if it's not the right thing, it's not the right thing. I think it's just by the sheer fact that they didn't want you, it's probably best for you, right? You don't want to be in, mm -hmm. you don't want to be in places that you're not wanted or valued. Um, but mm -hmm. sometimes as well, it wasn't the best thing for you. And I fired people it's one particular person I'm thinking of in New York, which was one of my big fires before I left because they were a managing director of my company. Um, right. um, and I've said to them in, in the, as I was, as I had dismissed them that you're going to have a conversation with me in a couple of years where you realize that this wasn't the right role for you. And they did. And I knew it wasn't the right mm. role for them. It wasn't right role for our company. Our company was not doing so well under the, uh, in the division of our company they were running and it proved not to be the right role for them. And Sometimes you know that. For sure. I want to know what, just straight up, what does hard work look like to you? So for me, um, it's about finding a level of intensity that I can be consistent at. So, mm -hmm. and people often think of like, uh, I was just thinking about the gym then. Like people think that in order to be successful in the gym, they need to have like six months of just eating like broccoli and like, working out for mm. five hours a day, but that's just not sustainable. So it's not a good approach to hard work. What you really need to do is find where you can be intense consistently or what the, the maximum mm. amount of intensity you can maintain potentially for the rest of your life. I always talk to my, to my friends about this idea of having this one season of life and just finding the level of intensity you can be consistent at for potentially a decade. And for me, that's what I do. So like what that means for me is every day I will work 
um, I'll wake up in the morning. I work pretty much until 9 p.m. And then 9 p.m. I go to the gym for two hours. Then I come home and that for me is free time. So um, mm. I can DJ, I can like mess around on YouTube. And some days, I'll be honest, some days when if I don't feel like it, I won't work hard that day. I'll just mm. do something else. And like, I'm really like um, self-empathetic with how I'm feeling. And I know that my life isn't judged on any one day or one week. I have to zoom out and look at the way that I've performed over longer periods of time, years, and say, okay, have a day off, Steve. Just lay in bed longer today if you don't want to wake up. And Yeah, and, and how do you think that people can replicate that kind of self-empathy in work when they don't have that control over their time or, or their days? It's a good question. And I think I have such a narrow view as someone that's basically been a CEO for such a long time. But I think going back to the days where I was working in call centers, um, it, it means taking a day off and being unapologetic about it, um, regardless of the pressures from your boss. And you've got to realize that your health and your mental health are your first foundation. I absolutely, I absolutely agree. And then how do you, how do you actively encourage that then for people in your team, for your employees? So for my team, the way that our, our hours and work works is I will come into the office at sometimes 11 o'clock and then sometimes I'll leave at four because I'm tired or I'll leave at 4 a.m. because I'm busy or and then some days I'll be like do you know what guys I'm going to Bali for three weeks now and sometimes they'll say that they'll say that to me as well and that's always been the way yeah like, I, I have a difficult question here ask a difficult <laughs> so, question. so so obviously we hear about these companies like Google and Apple and everything who have unlimited holiday and you can take it whenever and you get your laundry done in the office and all of that then there's also the dialogue around it that often paints that then on the one hand as a really great thing and allowing lots of freedom and all of that. On the other hand, essentially as a competition of how little you can take because you can take as much when as you want. When it goes badly, it is. It's a form of uh, reverse psychology where it's like, take whatever mm. you want and let's see. Yeah, and then you don't take any at you all. Are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's when it's done badly. And so you have to live it. And this is the same with everything in companies. If you say one thing, but then subtly you're, you're living another set of values. It all falls sure. down. Kind of verged onto the hardly working side. So first of all, this is another quick fire round. Netflix or a walk? Uh, a walk. I don't watch Netflix. After work, a cup of tea or a glass of wine? Neither. I don't drink either. Once again, I'm going to no say a glass of wine. I'm going to say a glass of wine, but I actually don't drink alcohol uh, during the week. Okay. So a glass of non-alcoholic yes. wine. Yeah. Some grape juice. Sometimes on Friday. Yeah, grape juice. A huel or, <laughs> um, or I shouldn't really keep plugging them. Or like a, uh, a protein shake. Letting off steam, a workout or a night out? A workout. Introvert or extrovert? Mm, I, I was going to say both. I'm going to say introvert. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, and how do you how do you get that kind of, you know, that me time that you need within your working day or within your hectic kind of schedule? So I've actually started meditating quite often. Okay. And I actually do it in my in my in my shower, which has been really um really interesting experience because as, as very busy people like me and you, um, we have a lot of tabs open all the time. And I, I, I always heard about meditation and then people I really, really respect in the business world told me that they meditate and the, and the, the advantages of doing so and how much benefits had on their life. I tried it, I couldn't do it. 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 Kept thinking about things. And I've gotten to the point now where I'm getting fairly good at it and I really know the value of it. Which is, I, I completely agree. And I, I think that actually... I write a bit about it in the book. Meditation still doesn't work for me. And I'm intent on making it work at some point, but now is not the time. Now, 
because, because I keep trying it, not because I'm like, this is not the time. I feel like now is the time because if, if you feel like you're too like busy for it. Time, yeah. <laughs> you need to calm down. Yeah. No, but I, I continuously try it and it's not, it hasn't worked for me. So my form of meditation, I guess, is the gym. It's when I put my phone away. It's when I blast my music, which doesn't make my head empty at all. But that is exactly, you know, it encourages that extra thought to come out and to make its way into the world. And I think that is incredibly important. So would you consider something like, I mean, I guess you have a number of those things then. You have your DJing, you have your you have yeah, your gym, you have too. your meditation. And all of those are kind of forms of escape for you. 100%. Even the walk to the gym is, um, when I do walk to the gym, is just like life-changing. It's like 15 minute walk at nighttime, no one's on the streets. Sometimes I walk back at 3am in the morning and it's completely empty in London. And those moments listening to my music walking through the streets are like yeah. meditation for me as well. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I love a good walk. Um, Thank you so much for joining us today, um, Stephen. It's been great to chat and great to kind of get your insight on so many things. Um, I know lots of people will have enjoyed it. Can you tell us where people can yes, find you um, online? First of all, thank you for having me on. And I feel like it's such a huge honour to... Um to be invited on so early into your podcast journey. And I know this podcast is going to be incredible. So to feature is a tremendous honor. Um, you can find me on um, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, all that stuff. But um, if you want to know a little bit more about me, then why don't you go and listen to my podcast with Grace on the Diary of a CEO? Um, or you can listen, read my book, Happy Sexy Millionaire, um, if you want to. But yeah, thank you so much, Grace. It's, um, as I say, it's an honor. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Working Hard, Hardly Working. I have been Grace Beverly and you can find me at Grace Beverly, L-E-Y, remember that one, on Instagram and on LinkedIn if you are that way inclined. Please, after listening to this episode, it really, really helps if you can leave a review, particularly on Apple Podcasts. That seems to be the best way to help out a podcast at the moment. But please like the episode, subscribe, share it, tag me, tag your friends do whatever you want to do but spread the word and let me know what you'd like to see next on any of my social platforms just get in touch I'd love to talk about some more interesting things so shoot your suggestions my way and I will see you next time mom deserves better than a drugstore card this mother's day surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com